Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey folks, uh, you ever wish you could be in a group chat with a bunch of cool, informed as hell friends who can help you process all the wild things going on in the world? Who can help you make sense of the news on days when, you know, the news doesn't make any sense? Well, you can get that here on Undistracted and you can get it in your inbox twice a week with the Meteor Newsletter. We're giving you news, action items, and fresh takes from underrepresented parts of the feminist community every Tuesday and Thursday. Click the link down below in our show notes to subscribe. about something I love the crown not the institution (laughs) no 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 no. the Netflix show y'all know the one with Claire Foy and um the um the British Meryl Streep y'all know who I'm talking about Olivia Coleman yeah that's the one I know uh there is a lot to be said about the history of colonization and racism under the British Empire but I don't know there's like something about the Netflix treatment that makes the cognitive dissonance just palatable enough sure the show has done a bit to hint at the faults of the empire in the subjugation of people of color across the entire globe but let's be honest We're here for the chaos and the costuming and Gillian Anderson's slow British droll as she plays Margaret Thatcher. Now, if you are honest with me, you too, my friend, have found yourself distracted by the high drama of the monarch. Don't lie to me. (laughs) Whether it was the Netflix series or a Diana documentary or a royal wedding, you too have found yourself at least momentarily caught up in the fever. It's by design. A guy named Clive Irving, who's the former managing editor of the UK Sunday Times, he says that the monarch uses, quote, pageant as an intoxicant. Yeah, the pomp, the circumstance, the intrigue, all of it not only distracts from some harsher truths, it renders those truths impolite. One shouldn't interrupt the beauty to make people uncomfortable, right? And as such, when former and current subjects of the British Commonwealth spoke some of their harsh truths when Queen Elizabeth II passed away last week, many of them got told to pipe down. They said it wasn't the moment, told that a country was in mourning and now just isn't the time to mention all these unpleasantries. Isn't the colonizing of millions of people across the global south far more unpleasant? I mean, and if you really want to get unpleasant, here's a cold hard fact. Great Britain ain't the only one. While we're talking about where the crown jewels are from, and we must, we need to be asking who exactly built Wall Street and why Latin America speaks Spanish in the first place. Look, decorum and the absolute adherence to it is a vestige of white supremacy culture. And we get told to hold our truths until a more appropriate time. And then that time never comes. Uh, But it's gonna come today because we are undistracted.
show today. I'll be talking about the Queen's colonial legacy with writer Shannon Malero, historian Caroline Elkins, and cultural critic Lavia Jai. History is of no fault of one person. But I also won't be sitting there being like, I am weeping. And I've seen videos and pictures of Nigerians and other people who are like weeping at Buckingham Palace. And I'm like, but weep for the women who we will never know their names. That's coming up. But first, it's the news. Our first item is about the Women's March. Now, if you know about the first Women's March in 2017, you probably know it was more than 4 million people across the globe. But you might have also heard stories about the divisions within it or rumors about some of the positions its founders supported. But data from a disinformation expert at American University reported in the New York Times shows that those rumors were intentionally driven by Russian social media accounts who targeted the Women's March for a period of years to slow down the movement and create fissures on the left. The trolls found their most successful attacks were those targeting Linda Sarsour. My name is Linda Sarsour and I am one of the national co-chairs for the Women's March on Washington. Sarsour has made a name for herself as a prominent voice for the rights of Muslims in the wake of 9-11. She's also a staunch supporter of Palestinian liberation, making her a target for criticism from the right, which Russian trolls easily took advantage of, fanning the flames of division. Over the course of a year and a half, 152 different Russian accounts posted material about Sarsour, claiming that she supported ISIS, that she hated Jewish people, and that she supported implementing Sharia law in the US. Let me say this, I know Linda, and none of that is true. The trolling upended Linda's life and destabilized the Women's March, an organization whose original mission was to present a unified front for the most vulnerable. This reporting is a good reminder that disinformation spreads like wildfire and we've got to check out our sources meticulously before we condemn or endorse something en masse. May we all be much more careful in the future. Next, nurses are fed up and they're not gonna take any of it y'all. Around 15,000 nurses in Minnesota walked off the job last week to protest the compromised patient care and burnout they say is caused by extreme understaffing in hospitals. The nurses union has been trying to negotiate an agreement with hospitals in the state for months to fix this issue. This is one of the largest nurses strikes in American history, and it comes after more than two years of a pandemic in which nurses bore the brunt of our COVID negligence. Here's the thing, one company that owns four hospitals where nurses went on strike said that they had been planning for the action for months, which begs the question of why, if hospitals have the resources to manage a strike, they can't provide more resources to nurses to provide care. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, employment and healthcare across the U.S. remains below pre-pandemic levels. And I can say this personally, without nurses, our healthcare system would crumble. To the nurses in Minnesota, we thank you and you've got our solidarity. Now, I want to close by shedding some light on one of the oldest forms of voter suppression there is, and one woman who's been trying her hardest to mitigate it. Up until as recently as 1965, several states in the South had a rule that in order to vote, you had to be able to read. These were called literacy tests, and you literally had to take an exam before entering the poll booth. In many ways, this was really a ploy to keep black people from voting because, you know, for so long it was illegal to teach us how to read and write and our schools were historically underfunded. And while the Voting Rights Act eventually removed those exams, some states still try to make it harder for people with reading difficulties to vote. A lot of people intimidated by voting who can read and write. Most of the people who have a problem with reading and writing and understanding they're not going to go vote. That was Olivia Coley Pearson speaking with ProPublica. Coley Pearson is from Coffee County, Georgia, where a third of the voters struggle with a basic reading level. And she's been criminally charged twice 
for helping voters who, quote, legally didn't qualify for help with their ballots. Since Georgia only identifies being disabled or being unable to read English as reasons for assistance. Yeah. While Coley Preston has never been formally convicted, the state's efforts to stop her serve as a warning going into these midterm elections. There's very little conservatives won't stoop to in order to stop black and Latina voters from reaching the polls, including cracking down on volunteers like Olivia, who helps voters understand their ballots. Poll workers are deeply essential, y'all, and we will need them in full force this November and every November. And if you can't be a poll worker, but want to volunteer your time, visit whenweallvote.org. Coming up, I'll be talking to three brilliant women about what a world without colonialism could look like right after this short break. Hey, while we're here, want to stay undistracted a little bit more? Sign up for the Meteor Newsletter. We'll send you inclusive feminist takes on the week's news, what's happening in pop culture, and easy ways to make a difference in your community twice a week. Plus, regular takes from some of my favorite voices, like Rebecca Carroll and Dahlia Lithwick, Renee Bracey Sherman, and more. Join our growing community. Click the link down in our show notes right now to get the Meteor in your inbox. You might even find some bonus undistracted content. I'll see you there. And we are back on Monday as news networks went wall to wall with coverage of Queen Elizabeth II's funeral. Puerto Rico was in the dark, like the complete dark. A Category 1 hurricane washed away bridges, contaminated drinking water, flooded roads, and caused a still unknown loss of life and damage to people's homes and livelihoods. And it did not have to be that way. Puerto Rico is one of the many places in the world where colonial powers, first the Spanish, then us here in the U.S., swept in to exploit the land and her people. What they left behind is a people struggling to take an equal place in the world, not because they lack the might, but because they lack the opportunity. That's the legacy of colonialism. And perhaps no empire left a bigger footprint or a darker shadow than the British Empire. So this week, as the queen is buried, we're talking about how her colonial legacy lives on. My guests today are Lovi Ajay, who was born in Nigeria and today writes about tackling fear and living boldly. Caroline Elkins is a historian of the British Empire and was part of the first ever lawsuit against the United Kingdom by its victims of colonization. And writer Shannon Maletto is my colleague here at The Meteor. So we really wanted to have a conversation about colonialism. I think obviously much of the world has been reckoning with the legacy of the British Empire, but we want to take stock of the entire world because colonialism uh, is not necessarily unique to the UK. And each of you bring a different perspective to this. Caroline, you are a historian. Lovey, you are a writer and you are part of the Nigerian diaspora. Shannon, you write about Puerto Rican identity and the American legacy of colonialism. But I want to start at the person who's at the center of the story right now, right? QE2, Queen Elizabeth II, who, as we are speaking, is being laid to rest. And the reaction to her death on social media revealed that she is, shall we say, a complicated figure for people. Did you all watch any of any of the funeral, any of the kind of pomp and circumstance that has been surrounding this for the last week. Caroline, you're shaking your head. Yes, Lovey, you're shaking your head now. <laughs> Caroline, did you look at any of it? I did. You know, I did it as, as it was an act of research, ladies. You know, I had, I was watching this with an eye to, quite frankly, symbolism and empire. You couldn't but help notice the degree to which empire and commonwealth, the service was wrapped around it. It was carefully curated. And on top of which, the, the crown, the scepter, the, the, the whole thing on top of the coffin 
It was like the weight of empire was on uh, on top of, you know, the mood of empire was literally riding on her coffin, um, both in and out of Westminster Abbey. And so, you know, I don't want to be glib about it, but I couldn't help but be struck by the fact of how the weight of colonialism was hanging there mm. and then quite literally atop her coffin. Those are powerful images. And I, w- I want to come back to that in a second. Shannon, did you watch it all? Because I understand that the queen has kind of a unique place in your family. Yes, my mom and I actually were in London not too long ago, and we hit all the Queen's hotspots. We like to say we were in all her houses because we did go to Windsor. We checked out Buckingham Palace. So my mother and I are are Queen fans. So I did not watch the funeral um, only because I hate funerals. But I think for me, the whole period has been really a chance to reflect on not just empire and where it's put so many of us, but how we interact with it now. Because although it's technically still not the British empire as it was so many years ago when she first came into power, the effects are still there. There are still countries that have her face on the money. Yeah. So it's definitely been um, confronting a lot of <laughs> opposing ideas that exist inside my brain. Lovey, you are Nigerian. You were like fervently shaking your head. No, I watched that funeral. I imagine the queen meets something uh, different in your family. The monarchy is something that I, as a somebody who's Nigerian born and bred, just finds to be overly celebratory of its space in history. You know, like <laughs> I mean, Nigeria is going to turn 62 years old October 1st. My mom is 66. She's going to be 67. So this country is younger than her. This country is younger than my mother. And, you know, the person who is the beacon, yes, no, she's not to blame for colonialism, but she is the actual symbol, the actual figurehead of this thing. And, you know, a lot of people, I watch The Crown, like everybody else on, on Netflix and understand. Listen, because that's my show. That's my show. Do you and tell the me? cognitive dissonance is real. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And they told the whole Crown's business. And that's one thing I really appreciated about it is it didn't, it shed light on how much it's a gilded cage, ultimately. I think about what would have happened if this queen was a radical woman. What could have actually happened and shifted in history? You know, we, we watched the moments when she you know, her, the person who played her went and did tours in Africa to discourage people from even seeking independence. So when this person is gone, I was like, I make no qualms of the fact that I don't plan on celebrating or mourning my oppressor. And if people are like, well, she, it was not her fault. No, it was not her fault. You know, history is of no fault of one person. But I also won't be sitting there being like, I am weeping. And I've seen videos and pictures of Nigerians and other people who are like weeping at Buckingham Palace. And I'm like, but weep for the women who we will never know their names. Igbo people, they died. Like people lost family members and droves in the Biafran War, which happened right after Nigeria's independence. That was the aftermath of colonialism. Like people literally are like, yes, I remember I remember my father dying because of all the things that England has done and the monarchies at the at the helm of it. So I'm not celebrating her death, but I'm also not grieving it. <laughs> Caroline, Lovey is really pointing to, Lovey and Shannon are pointing to, I think, the great range of responses here. And a lot of the conversation has centered around exactly what the Queen's role was in the British Empire. Some people are like... She was just a tiny little 96-year-old woman. This is not her fault. Other folks are saying, you know, a lot of decolonialization happened under her reign. And then other people are saying, but she had no power. Okay, well, did she have power to decolonize? Did she not have the power? Like, what is really the truth? Help us break down the queen's role in the British Empire. Uh, You know, what is your response to folks who say she did not personally direct the atrocities or the exploitation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are great questions. I just want to pick up on some points that Lovey was making because I think she put her finger right on it, which is this queen had enormous amounts of soft power, right? She was not prime minister. Let's make that clear, the way in which the monarchy works. She was, it's a constitutional monarchy. But remember, when she ascended to the throne in 1952, she took over as the, uh, the the largest empire that the history has ever known. <laughs> a quarter of the world's landmass, 700 million people. They had just lost India, so it was slightly smaller, but nonetheless. 
During the first 30 years of her reign, there was never a year when there was not a bloody end of empire war being fought. Mm. She would, they were not giving up empire easily. Now, question is, how much did she know and what did knowing mean, right? And when we think about this, there's no smoking gun. There's no document that says the queen gave the order for torture in detention camps in Kenya or crackdowns in Nigeria. But the degree to which she was known for being so well-versed in foreign policy, the degree to which she was impeccably prepared, the degree to which 15 prime ministers said or experienced the degree to which she gave wise counsel, to suggest she was in the dark is absolutely implausible, just implausible. And, you know, I, I sort of go back to Lovey's point about, you know, she inherited the monarchy. She was there to gatekeep history. She was preserving how the world remembered the past because that past was really sort of a source of her power in the present and future. And make no mistake, she worked assiduously to ensure that the Commonwealth, which really is just a collection of nations without any power, right? But that she was obsessive about her role as the head of the Commonwealth, which, by the way, is not inheritable. She ensured that Charles would become the, the head of the Commonwealth after her. The degree to which she, through everything she did, wrapping herself in empire and then Commonwealth. The other thing that she did is she beckoned people to revere her. Mm. And in that reverence, obscured all this other underbelly of empire. So, you know, I think it's a complicated history, but it's certainly not one in which she was not playing an intentional role in how the past is remembered and how her power was projected. Can I double plus this, please? You just drop bars like on top of bars, <laughs> uh -huh. because here's the thing that's happening that people are doing after her death. They are white womaning her. Mm -hmm. They are removing the pieces of her legacy and her history and her doings that speak to oftentimes decision that at best was apathy and at worst was cruelty, mm. right? So they've turned her into the, people are losing their great grandmother. She was a great grandmother to few, but she was a torturer and a figure of cruelty to billions. The only people who have the privilege of being humanized in that way, even though their legacies of cruelty are white women, white people. And this aftermath has been fascinating to me. You know, I'm, I'm thinking back to all of those scenes in The Crown, right, where she's going on these so-called goodwill tours, these tours of the Commonwealth, and doing what you're saying, Caroline, beckoning people to revere her, right? And that soft power is not without consequence, right, in some very hard and tangible and deeply challenging ways. Caroline, you're not just a historian. You've also participated in legal action brought by Kenyan victims of British torture, for them to win the right to sue their colonizers. What's the history that prompted that particular action? Like, how did you get involved? I'm curious what sort of what sort of ripple effect that suit had across the Commonwealth. The suit was filed in 2009 by survivors of detention camps in Kenya. And as, as a, one way of suppressing the Mau Mau emergency, the British government <clears throat> set up a mass system of detention without trial where they executed systematized torture and murder. Mm. And they detained about a million and a half people. And to your point, Lovey, in each one of those detention camps, a picture of Her Majesty hung. I spent about over 10 years putting the story back together again because getting back to how much the Queen knew. Her ministers lied all the time, to Parliament, to all kinds of inquiries. And when they finished up empire, they burned most of the documents. They got rid of them. And so I sort of put the story back together again, which then becomes the basis for the first time the British government has been sued by a former colonized population in the High Court of London. It ends up, fast forward, you know, four years later, the British government settles this case, recognizes for the very first time in the history of the British Empire that torture had been uh, used in Her Majesty's name and settled for about 20 million pounds sterling. And what's very interesting about this case is when the claimants were in London, I was there with them at various points. Do you know the one person they wanted to say? The queen. It was to the queen that they were appealing for justice. I mean, I could make sense of it all. And some of this funeral is helping me with this. And they had to sort of internalize this reverence. It was to the queen who they were going to go for a sort of mercy, for justice. The same queen that hung in their detention camps. And I think it's only really recently that we are beginning to understand the full extent 
of the ways in which the violence and the torture were systematized during Queen Elizabeth's rule and really systematized in a way, as I said before, that it's very hard to believe she was completely in the dark about this. Quite something, actually, when you think about it. It really is. And I want to turn now to some of that lived experience because, Lovey, you spoke about your mother living through this, her generation seeing what it was to once be part of the British Empire and then to achieve independence as Nigeria did in 1960. How does your family talk about that time before independence? You know what's funny? They don't. (laughs) It's really fascinating. I realized that I've never had a conversation with my mother about what her life was like before Nigeria got independence. Because again, Nigeria 62, that means she was five. My grandmother, who lived through it, is no longer alive. But being born and raised in Nigeria, which still has all these fingerprints, like when I came to the U.S. at nine, how I spoke, I still use British phrases. So, for example, instead of saying cookie, I said biscuit. In Nigeria, attorneys still wear those white wigs. (laughs) (laughs) And they still call themselves barristers. There's so many ways in which Nigerians operate. And that Commonwealth fingerprint is still in everything. All these countries that were colonized by England, we still have so many specific things in common that is very British. Mm -hmm. Now, Shannon, we are talking about Britain, shining the light across the pond, as it were. But you are from Puerto Rico, uh, which is a, quote, unincorporated territory of the United States. Big air quotes on that. I think that the United States relationship with Puerto Rico and its other territories can sometimes evade scrutiny, the the scrutiny it deserves, quite frankly, because we don't call them colonies. We call them unincorporated territories. But you definitely see a parallel here, right, Shannon? I absolutely see parallels. Um, You know, one of the first and biggest things that came up in the immediate aftermath of the Queen dying and everyone, you know, taking to Twitter with their brand new degrees in uh, imperial history was a lot of talk about how, you know, almost a celebration of how this um, leader of an imperialist nation was gone. And, and, you know, maybe somehow that was going to change things. And it was just this air of excitement. And I see that and you know, everyone... Everyone's entitled to to feel how they feel about it. But what I think to myself and what I told my husband is, you know, are we going to have this same energy when the next uh, former U.S. president dies? You know, I, I don't know who is the oldest right now, but one of them is going to drop any day now. And are all of the Americans who were suddenly so interested in history are they going to remember that right now at this very moment in time, you know, Puerto Rico is sitting there to the south and is being treated like a colony. And it's especially, you know, today at the forefront of my mind because of the impact of Hurricane Fiona, which has completely, you know, wiped out the power grid in Puerto Rico. Um, And, you know, it's being framed as, oh, you know, those poor people, they just can't get it together because they just can't figure out how infrastructure works. And it's like, no, 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 no. We can figure out how infrastructure works. We can figure out how our power grid works. What we cannot undo is hundreds of years of what, let's be honest, is colonial rule and damage and tax breaks and misappropriation of funds and corrupt government. And it's all coming from the U.S. The U.S.'s main export to Puerto Rico is corruption and just an utter mishandling of resources. So, you know, the Queen's death has brought up a lot more than just how do I feel about British imperialism? Yeah. I mean, Hurricane Fiona essentially has the entire island effectively without power right now. And it will be that way for days, which is not just about the hurricane. It is about the grid. It is about the infrastructure. It is about the lack of investment. And I'm wondering, Shannon, what it was like for you immediately following the Queen's death, kind of watching this on social media. It was fascinating to almost see people treat it like a sport, right? Like there were teams, right? Like there was the Irish Twitter memes and the Nigerian Twitter memes and, oh, Black Twitter is a mess right now, right? But these jokes were coming from people living in the United States, which of course is currently keeping 
multiple populations of people in literal second-class citizenship. I'm curious what that site was like for you. As far as all the reactions on Twitter, you know, I'm not going to lie. I love a good joke. And Irish Twitter was absolutely popping um, <laughs> when it came to the jokes. And I did feel bad for laughing at them. But a, a good joke is a good joke. Other than that, I, you know, I largely did have to sort of unplug the whole thing because, and, and it's nothing to do with, you know, an emotional state over the queen's death, but it really came down to what I cannot stand is people in glass houses throwing stones. And right Mm. now, you know, those of us living in mainland USA, we live in just the biggest glass house possibly in the, on the globe. You know, we, we have benefited and we have thrived as a country off of some massive, massive atrocities. And no matter how we want to spit it, no matter how we want to frame it, no matter how much we want a 4th of July fireworks it, you know, we are just as bad as the UK. And and frankly, the only difference is the UK had a head start. They've been doing it a lot longer than we have. But to make it out to be that we have some sort of moral high ground to stand on, so it's almost foolish to me to take that stance because, you know, what are we as individuals doing right now to dismantle the oppression that we as Americans are putting out into the world? We're just tweeting. Mm, especially given that some of the former leaders of this country, their faces are on the money too, right? Caroline, I want to stay with Puerto Rico for a second because these similarities that Shannon is is drawing are critically important. What are what are some of those threads that we need to continue to pull at? And what are some of the functional differences between what the U.S. does and what the British Empire did? Yeah, I mean, I think the these are great questions. And listening to you, Shannon, I was so I was so struck by, you know, it's kind of in my own head, taking a step back and thinking about how do we get these kinds of structural inequities today? And how do we get them in in countries that profess themselves to be liberal democracies, right? This is sort of the spread of liberalism, this idea that everybody can benefit from rule of law and free markets and all of that. Well, you know, I think insofar as we can see a common thread between, say, you know, let's sort of make a leap here, between what happened in loving your, you know, in Nigeria and also, Shannon, what's going on in, in Puerto Rico? Well, this sort of sense of this broader civilizing mission broadly defined, right? The British were really explicit about it. This is what they were up to. And it kind of was a a smokescreen to their empire, right? They're out there exploiting, but it was all about developmentalism. So that whether it was blacks in Nigeria or brown people in India, that one day you're going to be just like us, but not yet, just not yet. And the same sort of concept applies to even somewhere like Puerto Rico in the United States, that one day with the tutelage of the Americans coming in and you're part of this commonwealth, you're going to have the benefits of all the things that democracy will give to you, but just not yet. But guess what happens? Not yet never comes. And so you have to grab the not yet if you are black and brown people in these populations, right? And I have to say this sort of concept of not yet, it's in every major document that's ever been out there. After World War I, the Treaty of Versailles, the creation of the League of Mandates, uh, nation mandates, the United Nations, the creation of non-self-governing territories. I mean, literally that phrase, not yet developed, not yet ready to stand on their own, this kind of, you know, making mass swaths of the population like their children and getting back to the queen, the matriarch, and she was self-crafted this way, the matriarch of empire and commonwealth just died, the mother just died, and now Charles is taking on the role as being the patriarch. And just like Shannon, if we want to get back to the U.S., the classic sort of Uncle Joe Biden. Now, I mean, it's partly because he's kind of dopey sometimes and he says stupid things, but the, the this sort of familial language, right? Don't forget the power of language, the power of the way in which these societies are being cast and this idea that not yet doesn't come. And look, Frantz Fanon was right, who said the only way for formerly colonized populations to be truly free is to shed the shackles of liberalism because it's not really equal. Ooh, I mean, listen, anytime we get a Fanon quote in here. If I could also jump on what Caroline said about, you know, this idea of not yet, I... <sighs> Sorry, I get so worked up trying to not 
curse. <laughs> say what you got to say. It's all right. We're an adult podcast. Oh, perfect. This idea of not yet fascinates me because there have been moments in history where we had a chance to like take the shackles off my feet so I could dance mm-hmm. and we didn't take it. But where are those opportunities coming from? They're coming from the United States Congress. Mm. They are deciding what freedom can look like. Like right now with the Puerto Rican uh, Status Act, that is stuck because it is a hot-ass mess. The oppressor is deciding what freedom could look like for the rest of us. And it frustrates me to no end that right now they're saying, well, we're going to think of what these three options could look like for Mm y'all, and then we'll let y'all decide. But from these three limited options that we over here who do not live there, Mm -hmm. who do not help, who do not even keep up with the damn news stories have crafted for you to choose from. And and it's this idea that like, we're giving you this chance. Don't mess it up. Mm. We're facing so much not yet. And this is why I fear, you know, I fear that statehood vote. Deep, I deeply, deeply fear that statehood vote because the greatest tool that the U.S. has over the island of Puerto Rico is to say, you cannot make it without us. Mm. And that is false. You know, I want to keep pulling at that thread because when we talk about the global history of colonization and oppression, there are many empires. We had Julissa Arce on the the podcast last week, right? And she was talking about the fact that she speaks Spanish as a Mexican-born woman is in and of itself a vestige of colonialism, right? I'm currently in Maryland sitting on indigenous land. I have the blood running through me of enslaved African people who built this country, right? And Shannon, I know that there's not one answer to this that um, is agreed upon by everyone who lives in Puerto Rico, who once lived in Puerto Rico. But in your mind, what does liberation look like? Oh, that's so hard. (laughs) It is hard for me to say because anyone who lives there right now will hear this and say, well, she's not really Puerto Rican. Mm. And they can say that. I was born in New York. My mother and father were born in New York. My grandmother was born in Patillas. And my grandfather's family is also from Patillas. We are in Patillas alone. Not the whole island, but in specifically Patillas. We are there going back to the early 1800s as tobacco and sugarcane farmers. So sure, people could say, I'm not from there. But you you can't take out what's in here. Mm-hmm. You can't take any of this out. And I run on that soil. So in my opinion, liberation looks like independence. We have been a prize of Spain and a prize of the United States for far too long. Well, how has that benefited us? How has that benefited the people that live there? Mm-hmm. So for me, it does look like independence. It does look like becoming an independent nation, a nation that serves itself. Mm -hmm. It's time for Puerto Rico for Puerto Ricans. Mm. I feel like that sounds horrible to say it out loud. But if tomorrow the island voted for independence and I got a call from Joe Biden saying, you know what, you can't go back because you're technically not a citizen anymore, then I'll pay that price. Mm. If I got to stay my ass here because I wasn't born over there and now independence is happening. Okay, take it. Similarly, when you look across what is left of the so-called Commonwealth, what do you want the fate of that empire to be? What what do you believe it should look like from now on? I mean, I feel like people being able to draw their own lines. So Nigeria was in a deep civil war afterwards because again, like colonialism doesn't care about who actually lives there? It just draws random arbitrary lines. And whether or not people got along before, then it's just like, not y'all together. So funny enough, I did um, my ancestry just because, I mean, I already know my family background, but I said, I just want to test this out real quick <laughs> and see what happens. So I did my ancestry about probably three years ago. And it's interesting. It came back and said, I am 60% Benin, 40% Nigerian. And I laughed because it ultimately was just saying you're 100% Yoruba. Yeah. (laughs) Because the arbitrary line drawn to split up Benin and Nigeria, Yoruba people ended up here. Yoruba people ended up on the other side. Yeah. And ultimately, my family is just 100% Yoruba. 
And it just affirmed to me just how much colonialism has split us apart in ways that made no sense, in ways that did not honor the land, did not honor the languages, did not honor the people. It just built these systems and these boxes and said, now you're here, now you're here. So that's my reflection is that I don't know what freedom looks like from the point where you understand that your people are elsewhere also. But I think it also looks like us knowing that our people aren't just in the borders that have been created for us. Yeah. Our passports are these books that have told us that we are separate. But truly, there are no borders to our cultures, to our languages. Like you will even, you know, descendants of enslaved Africans who are here. You go to Ghana, you see somebody who looks just like your cousin and your auntie. All the things that they have tried to do to separate us should not keep us apart. All of our fights are the same. So our fights are the same in Mississippi, Mm -hmm. right? As they are in Accra, as they are in Johannesburg and Cape Town. And I think freedom looks like us all understanding that Mm -hmm. and moving with that in mind and knowing that all of us belong to each other, no matter how much they have tried to separate us. Yeah. I mean, Caroline, we're talking about what we hope it looks like. And then there's a question of what it will look like. Right. With the Queen's passing, I think we're all recalling the fact that the British Empire changed significantly during her lifetime. It got much smaller. Right. And of course, the Irish, Kenyans, lots of people will tell you it did not get smaller without a fight. But now that she has passed on, what do we think the fate of the empire is? What do you think the United Kingdom will look like as it moves forward? Yeah, look, I think that King Charles III, there's a lot that's hanging in the balance for him, right? Let's put aside whether or not people are going to have affection for him in the same way and and the like. But we discussed earlier how much did the queen know? What did knowing mean? There is no question that King Charles is aware that serious crimes happened on the queen's imperial watch. That's one. Mm -hmm. Two, Coming from formerly colonized populations, the groundswell of demands coming from whether it's Jamaica, whether it's Canada and the indigenous populations there with children torn from their parents and put into these residential homes where horrible things happened. Back to Lovey's point about these arbitrary boundaries that cause vast amounts of violence, um, whether it was Nigeria, whether it was uh, India and Pakistan at partition, et cetera, et cetera. One thing that working on that case, that Mau Mau High Court case taught me, is the power of history, the power of the truth, mm-hmm. and courage that it takes to bring truth to power in the form of, of the British government, in the form of the legacy of the monarchy. And what I would encourage so many populations around the world is to say, look, we've known from histories from your parents and your grandparents But at the end of the day, those in power will say, show me the document, show me the history book, show me. I don't want to hear about oral history because, you know, people make things up. It is so documented now, the degree, the roots of structural inequalities, the degree to which violence was inflicted in the British Empire. And what's important to point out is that, and you were mentioning before, all, all empires are violent. But the British had a particular pernicious way of making everybody believe they were exceptional. Mm. that there was this myth of British imperial benevolence, and it is obscuring the real nature of the past, and it's also making it very difficult for people to realize and actualize their own futures. So my view on this is King Charles III either has to step up and recognize this rupture to frankly have the courage that his mother didn't have, and at the same time, the people of formerly colonized people must demand that he do this. Mm. And if he does not do this, then they have to find other ways to separate themselves out of the Commonwealth. And there's different ways of doing that. But I think that they need to move forward in ways that are without sort of these former imperial structures. And it's hugely, it's not just symbolic. It means something about going it alone to be truly independent today. I would also say that um, British citizens need to make that demand as well, right, Uh, of their government. The only thing they got left, they're this tiny, craggy little island in the North Sea. Mm. With their economies in the crapper, Brexit hasn't worked out, their government's in shambles, the only thing they have left is a glorified past. So make no mistake, I think it's also a moment where some people are going to hold on to this past tighter than ever before. Ooh, that could be a podcast episode in and of itself. Just right there. (laughs) (laughs) I've got one last question that I really want to ask each of you. But as I do that, I want to really set the context of 
what colonialism, neocolonialism, residual colonialism looks like today, right? According to the United Nations, there are still 16 non-self-governing territories. That's 2 million people who are still under United Kingdom, United States, and French control. There's, of course, neocolonialism, where these economic relationships create a kind of dependency where nations are technically free, but they are hamstrung by continuous generational debt. So we talked a little bit about what liberation looks like for Puerto Rico, for Africa, but broadly, what does the opposite look like? What is a world completely free of colonial domination look like, Caroline? You know, as an historian, I have to say, it's, it's, it's a thought game, right? Because I have a hard time imagining the world without empires, right? We're actually in a weird period of time, right? Putin right now is sort of exercising his whole, you know, fantasy around empire. But look, I think if I were to imagine a kind of utopia without this, it's where people are all starting on the same starting line, that the 100 meter dash doesn't begin with all the white folks in power beginning on the 80 meter mark. Mm -hmm. It doesn't begin with basically an extraction of wealth to the extent that young people can't be educated, that elderly can't be taken care of, and that people are actually able to actualize their own possibility. And as, as one knows, and everybody on this, in this conversation knows, it's not because the world is lacking in talent, right? It's because there's lack of opportunity. And what I would imagine in the kind of world we're talking about is that there is real opportunity that transcends the color of your skin, where you come from in this world. And that, to me, is what a world looks like without without colonization. Shannon, how about you? For me, it would look extremely different because without colonization, I don't speak Spanish. I don't speak English. I am a Taino without colonization. Mm. I keep thinking about this, um, loving whenever I hear you speak. Further back in my family tree, we originated in Nigeria as Yoruba people. So I think about that and and it occurs to me that that portion of that family tree wouldn't have come in to the Taino portion of the family tree without colonization either. So it's so hard to imagine because my people and my original culture was erased um, Mm. by what many Americans don't want to recognize as a genocide carried out by Columbus and other explorers when he just wiped out the Taino population by the millions. So that changed everything before I can even pinpoint a family member. So I think for me, it's just so difficult to fathom what it would have been like had things gone differently (laughs) going all the way back to the 1400s. Love you. Close us out. What does a world free of colonial domination look like? A world free of colonial domination would be a bunch of people's culture still, right? People still speaking all these languages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so many languages wouldn't be extinct. We would have a more borderless travel. The fact that our passports, the physical thing that we hold, literally determine how far we can go on this earth mm-hmm. that frankly belongs to none of us. Mm-hmm. That's what a world without colonialism would look like. You know, the fact that the U.S. passport can get you to, what, 180 countries without a visa, but like another country's passport can get you to 20, you know, is a is is because of colonialism. So I think it looked like a more borderless world where we can all travel and meet and see each other and eat our foods and speak our languages, our rightful languages. You know, Nigeria's official language is English, a country that has over 200 languages. Our official language is English. And now, like, we're even seeing people who are born and raised in Nigeria not even speaking their own language. Not, they don't, I have cousins who don't speak Yoruba, which is wild to me. So, yeah, a world without colonialism would look like us being freer to actually just physically move and go around this world and, and know more about everybody else. I love it. Well, here's to getting to the world that you all describe. Thank you so much, Shannon, Lovey, Caroline, for everything that you do, for all that you've taught us in this conversation. It was incredibly rich, and I know folks are going to learn so much. Thank you.
Lovey Ajayi is a best-selling author of books like I'm Judging You, a cultural critic, and a professional troublemaker. Caroline Elkins is professor of history and African and African-American studies at Harvard University and the author of Legacy of Violence, a history of the British Empire. Shannon Malero writes The Meteor's newsletter, which you can find at wearethemeteor.com slash newsletters. What strikes me most is how nearly impossible it is to imagine the world we have without colonialism. And that is, of course, the point. As I always say, oppression strips us of our imaginations because empire and its many, many tentacles find their way into everything, not just our economies or constitutions, but our food, our medicine, our languages, our clothing. It is, in a word, ubiquitous. And that makes it challenging to part from. But to quote my friend Glennon Doyle, we can do hard things. And frankly, we have to. We have an obligation to strive for freedom even, and especially when it feels as challenging as pulling tiny individual threads from the totality of the garment of human existence. Because being colonized is not our destiny. Because our children deserve agency. Because we should get the chance to design the world we want and not simply accept the one that we were given. And that, my friends, is always the point. So that's it for today, but never, ever for tomorrow. Undistracted is a production of The Meteor and Pineapple Street Studios. Our lead producer is Rachel Ward. Our associate producer is Mary Alexa Cavanaugh. Thanks also to Treasure Brooks, Hannes Brown, Raj Makija, and Davey Sumner. Our executive producers at The Meteor are Cindy Levy and myself, and our executive producers at Pineapple are Jenna Weiss Berman and Max Linsky. You can follow me at Miss Pacchetti on all social media and our team at The Meteor. Subscribe to Undistracted and rate us on Apple Podcasts or most places you find your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, thanks for being, and always thanks for doing. I'm Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Let's go get free. <laughs>